0: Hello and welcome to A Better Peace, the War Room Podcast. I'm Jacqueline Witt, Professor of Strategy at the US Army War College and the editor for A Better Peace. Thanks for joining us today. Today's podcast explores a particular conundrum for strategists and military planners, especially those from advanced democracies, where values and interests are often intertwined in rhetoric and in practice. So what do you do when humanitarian crises erupt around the world? What are the opportunities and challenges for military intervention or for peacekeeping operations? When should military intervention be on the table at all? What are the relevant strategic, operational, and tactical considerations? So to explore some of these questions and challenges, I've asked Dr. Mary Elizabeth Walters to join me here on A Better Peace. Mary Elizabeth is a fellow Tarheel uh, for her Ph.D. training, and she's received her Ph.D. in military history. She's now an assistant professor of history at Kansas State University. And her dissertation looked at why and how the US military became the leader of international refugee assistance in Albania. And her research interests include peacekeeping and humanitarian operations more broadly. So Mary Elizabeth, thanks and welcome to the War Room. Thank you for having me. All right, so we'll start with a question about what defining the problem. So what is the strategic calculation or the strategic logic or the problem that military leaders face when there is a humanitarian crisis going on somewhere somewhere in the world. So let's start by constraining it to a humanitarian crisis linked to conflict.
1: Okay. Um, because the calculus is very different if you're dealing with something like the 2004 tsunami. Okay.
0: So natural disasters. So natural famine, disasters, like famines, that.
1: famine. Some to some degree, these are a, a different set of calculus. Often. The operation is far more constrained, and you're not dealing with kind of an endemic conflict that
0: if you get involved in, you might own. And might not be able to get out Out. of. So um, for that purpose, let's stick with... And maybe not dealing with contested Mm. environments. Okay. Exactly. All right. So Um, we'll deal with the hard problem. So
1: we'll we'll deal with the worst (laughs) problem. Yes. Uh, Let's go to 1998 in, in Kosovo. And we start to get reports in the international media about an uptick in... Uh, Ethnic violence between the ethnic Serbs uh, and ethnic Albanians. And at this point, Kosovo is part of uh, the Federal Republic of Yugoslavia, um, a successor state of communist Yugoslavia. So the international community starts to take an interest. And at that point, they're not really keen to send in the military. So you get a year of diplomatic efforts. Those start to break down. At that point, NATO starts to get more invested and you end up with Operation Allied Force. NATO then owns the problem. There is still a NATO peacekeeping force in Kosovo 20 years later. Um, So one of the big calculus is how bad of a humanitarian crisis is it? Uh, Is it in an area where your military could potentially do something? Um, have you tried diplomatic efforts? Are you willing to own the problem long-term?
0: And to, to stay. To stay. And so if if those are the calculations, and in, in this case, it's a NATO operation, so that's not just calculus for one country, that's a, a alliance, a coalition calculus that has to get sort of everybody on, on board to agree to these political um, questions, does the calculus change depending on which country we're, we're thinking about? And, and what are some of the ways that we see that vary?
1: Definitely. Uh, so Libya is a good example. Um, when uh, Gaddafi was removed, there were, was an uptick in really humanitarian crises. Uh, there was a lot of talk about using Kosovo as the model and, and intervening in that way. Um, there's a key difference in size. So size can play a really big role. It is one thing uh, to intervene in a place where a country, uh, what is now recognized by at least some countries in the world as a country, that is the size of Connecticut with a smaller population than Connecticut. Mm -hmm. than to intervene in a country the size of Libya uh, or Syria So
0: geographic size, population size, size.
1: population. um, What type of military forces might your intervening military be facing? Are you dealing with, um, you know, the Syrian military, which has uh, fairly sophisticated, you know, anti-aircraft defense systems? Um, Are you dealing with uh, kind of militias that have AK-47s? but not much else. These all go into it because it's gonna change how much of a commitment are you going to have to make? And are is, are your political leadership is, particularly in a democracy, is your broader public willing to sustain casualties to stop somebody else dying? Um, and you get the knee-jerk reaction of we ought to do something, can that be sustained mm-hmm. or not? Uh, and And something to keep in mind is that if you intervene, and then leave, you'll often make the problem even worse. Somalia is a great example of this. There have been multiple failed peacekeeping missions to Somalia, and each one drives instability. Because local actors try to use the peacekeeping mission to further their own aims, and then the Mm. moment that mission leaves, it sends the whole, any stability that might have been found back into
0: chaos. It's like a, a sort of injection into a complex system, which can then throw throw things off and change the change the entire nature of the of Definitely. the system. Um, one of the other sort of concepts that we hear sort of tossed around in this. Um, in this space, when we think about the strategic level, is um, the responsibility to protect, or R two P? Can you explain sort of what that what that is and where that idea comes from, and maybe how widely accepted is it, and how is it used in these in these conversations?
1: Definitely. So you get towards the end of the Cold War in the nineteen eighties. There, there's a growing conversation about, and it's really tied to the Helsinki Agreement. Uh, that human rights are an international issue. They're not just something that is the state's responsibility in, inside of the state. Uh, that this can be part of higher poly- international geopolitical thinking. Um, by the end of the Cold War, you start to get statements of you know, that, that human rights and atrocities, that, that is the role of the, the international community. In the 90s, you start to hear kind of talking about the, the right to intervene um, and kind of beginning discussions or, or more widespread discussions of just war theory, but applying it to humanitarian crises and stopping ethnic cleansing and genocide. Um, and then the responsibility to protect is really galvanized by actually the Kosovo War in 1999 that I work on uh, and is an immediate outgrowth of that. So
0: not only is there a right to intervene, but actually the international actually you have to. community has a responsibility, uh, an obligation to intervene. Yes,
1: exactly. So that the, the responsibility to protect argues that the state is responsible for protecting their population. And if they fail to do so, that at that point they've kind of given up to some degree their right to sovereignty and it becomes the duty and the responsibility of the international community to step in and protect the citizens that because their government will not is or can't. Exactly. Cannot. So there's a brief moment in time uh, around 2000 and uh, the first 6 months of 2001 uh, when the idea of the responsibility to protect is really being talked about a lot. There's uh, a lot of discussion about it at the UN, a lot in favor. Um, A lot of countries kind of semi-informally, semi-formally sign on to it. And then 9-11 happens and the strategic calculus changes. That
0: feels like so long ago um, when that moment was sort of at the forefront of international discussions.
1: Yeah, it's part of this broader moment really... Really, that goes up until 9-11 of the way there's a massive uptick in peacekeeping. So in the 90s, um, if I'm getting my numbers right, there's more peacekeeping missions that are created in that one decade than in the whole Cold War. Uh, So it's this moment of optimism about the Cold War is
0: over and we can do more. A new geopolitical sort of literally a new world. Yes order that we think is going to to last and then 911 happens and and then the discussion really shifts into more scholarly circles and and
1: a few diplomats are still talking mm-hmm. about it but you don't really see states
0: doing anything okay have has have crises in places like Libya and Syria and Yemen in particular increased the the conversation around humanitarian interventions in the recent uh, last few years
1: some more in the negative rather than the positive those are all cases in the sort
0: of warning against against intervention
1: yes all of those cases are one where you'd have to have either a country or a group of countries willing to incur incur probably pretty pretty heavy risk of casualties mm-hmm. um really complicated in terms of trying to negotiate a settlement Um, and really the trick with intervening is the intervener either has to be willing to impose a settlement and occupy, or if you're doing a more UN style peacekeeping mission, you have to have some degree of buy-in on the parties of they want a resolution. Mm -hmm. Uh,
0: and and they have to accept the peacekeeping force they've got. They can't be seen as occupiers, as invaders, and yep. so on and so forth, and so the, the cultural considerations, the linguistic considerations uh, seem sort of enormous. All of that honest. plays
1: into it. Uh, there's also some really interesting work coming out more in political science right now, looking at the qualitative differences between UN and non-UN peacekeeping mm. missions. Uh, and it, it's starting to point to, there there is a difference, and, and there's a couple of problems with UN peacekeeping missions. Um, they tend to be, the, the kind of command structure tends to be heavy on Europeans, um, kind of democratic militaries with kind of a, a strong sense of how do you interact with civilians and professionalization. The bulk of peacekeepers, however, are coming from the developing world. Um, it's often used as a reward. Um, because as long as they're on a UN peacekeeping mission, their paid set, uh, at their salary is provided through the UN peacekeeping budget, and it's at basically American and Western European standards right. of salary. And so it's a reward tour. You, you've just done kind of a hazard duty, or you're about to retire. Um, but sometimes they're coming from countries that don't have their own good track record of. Human rights and yeah. problematic relations between their military and their civilian population,
0: and different, yeah, different, different normative behaviors, different ideas about what is acceptable, exactly, uh, and what the what the f- purpose of the of the peacekeeping mission. And as they're currently
1: is, structured, uh, the UN cannot prosecute their own peacekeepers. So, if a UN peacekeeper kind of breaks the rules, does something bad, the range spectrum, you know, they Break the rules of engagement, they kill civilians, um, there's a problem with rape. Uh, the, U- the most the UN can do is report it to that soldier's home nation, um, and they can send them home, they can ban them from the mission. Um, but that is the extent yeah. of what the UN can do, and that creates a lot
0: of problems. So, this is one of the ongoing uh, pieces of of just dis- really intense discussion at the United Nations about the impunity of, of yes. peacekeepers and the protection of peacekeepers, but also um, how you hold them accountable um, in in military operations. So the, those are lots of sort of challenges. When might in this sort of current environment, when could you imagine a military intervention or a peacekeeping uh, mission really? making sense in, in, in terms of potentially working to resolve a, a crisis?
1: I think it, you'd have to have a couple of, of kind of, if you have a checkbox or something. Sure. Um, so one, it would need to happen in an area that is of strategic significance for your country. Um, so not a, as callous as it sounds, not every humanitarian disaster, not every campaign that ends up with ethnic cleansing is going to be in a place where your political leadership has a strategic interest. Mm-hmm. So interest um, still Interest matters. matters because otherwise you're not going to have the long-term commitment and you're going to end up with a failed mission. Uh, you might stop it for a couple of months, but they're going, it's going to restart the moment you pull out. And it might, in fact, be worse. Um, so interest. The next is, what are the military capabilities on the ground? What are you going to be going up against? Again, do you have the political will to face that? Uh, Peacekeeping or intervention works best when you're not facing a country with a a fully modern military Mm -hmm. with lots of resources and high-tech equipment.
0: Uh, Especially one that's intent on stopping exactly the intervention or the delivery of aid or whatever it is you're trying to, to do.
1: I. Uh, the next is ideally both parties, even if they're fighting, would like a way out. And your intervention can help provide them cover for a way out. Uh, so space for negotiation, exactly. off ramps. Um, some sort of uh political camouflage so that nobody's losing face if they back down uh alternatively it can work under the right circumstances if at least one of the actors uh, is fully supportive mm-hmm. uh, so kosovo would be an example of that um, the ethnic serbs serbia did not want the nato intervention uh Obviously, they're being bombed. Unsur-
0: unsurprising, <laughs> uh,
1: but Kosovo is majority ethnic Albanian, and they were very, very supportive of it. Uh, so some situations like that can work. Uh, the next is again ties back to this issue of interest: Are you willing to stay? Uh, to really have a successful mission, you have to be willing to stay. Um, if you look at not just Kosovo, Bosnia still has peacekeepers and a military presence. Um, the British, when they intervened in Sierra Leone in 2000, they stayed for a very long time. And, and that's really Mm -hmm. what you have to be willing to do. If you, if you don't have those conditions, then you're better off kind of taking the approach of a doctor of your first rule is to do no harm. Uh, So if if you're not willing to do it, uh, all the way, stay out of it. And it's awful and, and it can sound very callous because we want to help. Um, but sometimes we're going to end up making it worse.
0: So when we, when we think about ways that military intervention can exacerbate or make a situation worse, what are some of the complexities that military intervention can introduce into these humanitarian crises?
1: Uh, so a great example is actually the AIDS crisis in Africa. Uh, so there's a lot of evidence that actually peacekeepers... Uh, spread AIDS to West Africa in the 90s during some of the peacekeeping missions, both through the UN and then regional African uh, peacekeeping missions, uh, where they, in theory, had to be screened, but faked the screening. Mm-hmm. And dealing with, with militaries that, again, got in, into the mission and... Uh, either through black market economies that pop up around bases or or other means spread AIDS. Mm -hmm. Um, Similarly, in Haiti, you see public health consequences because of the peacekeeping deployment.
0: Uh, So that that can be one. Uh, You introduce new biology and new vectors for transmission of of germs.
1: You can create bubble economies. Uh, So you're intervening or you're coming into a a place that's post-conflict or or in the middle of a conflict, and suddenly there's a base, there's peacekeepers with lots of money Mm -hmm. that pops up around it. The peacekeeping mission closes or dramatically downsizes, and suddenly this this fragile economy crashes, which can spur a new cycle of violence. Sure. Uh, You can also run into problems with confusion among combatants about Military versus civilian. Uh, so, if militaries provide aid, uh, then that can cause problems for uh, civilian international aid organizations because it creates this confusion over impartiality. Are you are you part of this outside force coming in, and we we might be fighting them? Or are you are you a civilian providing neutral aid to all parties? Mm-hmm. Uh, so that can be a consequence uh, that you don't have as much. And this is why I wanted to separate out, you know, natural disaster. When the U.S. Navy comes in and they have the carrier and they can, you know, use helicopters and get to places that the roads washed out. You don't have to deal with this. Uh, trickiness of partiality, impartiality. Question about who,
0: who they're there to assist Exactly. Help. Sure. Uh, but when you're in a conflict situation, that's something to think about. Absolutely. So that seems like a lot of reasons not to try this, um, to not use military force to intervene in the middle of humanitarian crisis, even when um, the cost, the human cost, the economic cost, is extraordinarily high. Um, like you said, it it is heartbreaking. It is sort of gut wrenching to watch some of this some of this happen. Can we think about places where the military might be useful, uh, where military force might be the right the right answer to intervene and to stop um, crisis sort of in the middle of when it's happening?
1: The best time to do it is before it's completely collapsed. Uh, So if you have, if you're getting intelligence that says we're seeing an uptick, and it's starting to get bad, that's the best time to stop it. Uh, Because if you can get in in that kind of sweet moment, then you're not going to be having as much of a risks factor as if you're trying to come in three years into a conflict. Mm -hmm. Um, and you can you can nip it in the bud so that's a really good time to get in it's a really hard time to convince political leadership that that's the right thing because to it's
0: do. it's not it doesn't have the sort of emotional affective exactly pull early early on right it could you could you can imagine right that oh it's they're being hyperbolic it's being blown out of proportion like things aren't that bad maybe is a
1: great example where you're getting the reports it's getting worse and then it goes too fast Mm -hmm. and even if there had been the political will it all happens really really quickly uh so it can be really hard to do but if you can get in early um if you're dealing with a small area you know it's one thing to try and stop the syrian civil war versus again somewhere in you know the balkans much smaller geographic space um related to that you're you're going to have a higher chance of success if it's somewhere where you have cultural similarity because you won't accidentally feed into the conflict as much. Uh, So if you have some sort of connection with the country that's having this
0: problem. um, This is how we see like France, French involvement with Francophone Africa still remains higher than other than other Western countries.
1: And they have more linkages. They have, a better chance of success than someone coming in with, with absolutely no ties. Mm-hmm. This isn't that there aren't examples, uh, or
0: exceptions. Or that it's, uh, a, it's a perfect match right. it's all the time. It's definitely not perfect. Either.
1: Uh, sometimes, you know, with peacekeeping, it, it's more of, if you can get the buy-in to deploy the peacekeeping mission, sometimes the simple presence of having peacekeepers can help tamp it down. But again, you're looking at at a long term. Um, so, most peacekeeping missions aren't as dramatic as the Kosovo one where it's 78 days of bombing and then it's over uh, and you've managed to, to stop a campaign of ethnic cleansing and within two months of the last bomb, most of the refugees are back, not in their homes because they're burned, but you know back in the country. Um, but you can definitely have peacekeeping missions that that buy time for a diplomatic settlement, which is what most of them do. Mm-hmm. So that can be very, very successful as long as you have some degree of buy-in among the the warring parties that allows you to be there. Um, you can also use the military in in other ways. So if you have a refugee crisis, and it's not a conflict that you can directly intervene in, if it's too big, the military's factions involved are too sophisticated, that your kind of risk factor is beyond what you find acceptable, Uh, you can still use militaries to help stabilize surrounding neighboring countries. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because if you have a sudden influx of hundreds of thousands of refugees, a lot of the time the neighboring countries are already not the most stable. They they tend to be kind of fragile areas where these events happen. So the presence of uh, particularly kind of Western military peacekeepers can help provide that stability Mm -hmm. for the neighboring country.
0: And military capabilities in terms of logistics, organization, command and control, communication, um, sort of shoring up. Shoring up the state,
1: shoring up the infrastructure, making sure that... The presence of the refugees isn't posing an unbearable cost on the neighboring country mm-hmm. that could, and then they can be like any existing problems. Um, depending on the scale of the refugee crisis, again, militaries can provide kind of a stopgap measure in the time it takes aid organizations to mobilize. Um, if if you need rapid logistics, there's really no one better to call yeah. than the U.S. military. Uh, and so you can use military assets to get a huge amount of aid and uh, be that food, bedding, tents, all these short-term, stop it from being a complete disaster.
0: Mm-hmm. To create, again, we're talking about creating space and buying time exactly. for aid organizations, for international organizations. So it's not that the military is suddenly taking over refugee assistance. Yeah. It's that you're buying time for them to get in. But it, sort of, it, it almost turns in. it in from a from conflict intervention into these humanitarian assistance, disaster relief mm-hmm. type missions where where we have, a I think, maybe a clear understanding of what the military can yes. do and what it's what it's good at and what it's not um, not really set up to do. Absolutely. Um, so, Mary Elizabeth, thanks so much for joining me in War Room today. Uh, we've had, I think, a great conversation. Lots to think about for strategists, for military planners, for military professionals, um, but also for citizens and for the for the public to think about what it means when we see humanitarian crises sort of unfolding in front of us in the international uh, community and, and what is our obligation as humans, what is our obligation as a, as a state, um, and then as for military professionals, um, what can they do and, and what are they maybe not well-suited to do. So thanks so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. This has been great.